the stronger parts of the body with the effect of making them still stronger. Not only is health not to be measured by the pounds that one can lift or by some gymnastic feat that one can perform, but the possession of great muscular power may, if the heart and other vital organs be not proportionally strong, prove a menace to the health. This being true, one having his health primarily in view will use physical exercise, in part at least, as a means of building up organs that are weak, since the body, like a chain, can be no stronger than its weakest part. This is clearly the logical method of fortifying it against disease. Value of work. Although there may exist in one's vocation certain tendencies to disease, it must not be inferred that work in itself is detrimental to health. Health demands activity, and those forms of activity that provide a regular and systematic outlet for one's surplus energy and compel the formation of correct habits of eating, sleeping, and recreating best serve the purpose. Work furnishes activity of this kind and serves also as a safeguard against the unhealthful and immoral habits contracted so often from idleness. Even physical exercise which has for its purpose the reinforcement of the body against disease may frequently consist of full work without diminishing its hygienic effects. The mental attitude, while a proper thoughtfulness and care for the body is both desirable and necessary, it is also true that over-anxiety about, or an unnatural attention to, the needs of the body reacts unfavorably upon the nervous system. Observance of the laws of health, therefore, should be natural and without special effort a matter of habit. The attention should never be turned with anxiety upon any organ or process, but the mental attitude should at all times be that of confidence in the power of the body organization to do its work. Fear and morbidity, which are disturbing and paralyzing factors, should be supplanted by courage, cheerfulness, and hopefulness. Let it be borne in mind that hygienic living requires nothing more than the application of the same intelligence and practical common sense to the care of the body that the skillful mechanic applies to an efficient, but delicate, machine, and, just as in the case of the machine, care of the body keeps its efficiency at the maximum and lengthens the period that it may be used, the end and aim of hygienic living is best attained by cultivating that attitude of mind toward the body that avoids interference in the vital processes and permits the natural appetites, sensations, and desires to indicate very largely the body's needs, attitude toward habit-forming drugs, among the different substances introduced into the body, either as foods or as medicines, are a number which have the effect of developing an artificial appetite or craving which leads to their continued use. Since the effect of such substances is usually harmful and since they tend to engraft themselves upon communities as social customs, they present a twofold relation to the general problem of keeping well. The individual may be injured through the personal use which he makes of them, or he may be injured through the effect which they have upon relatives or friends or upon society at large. Since our social environment is a factor in health little less important than our physical environment, the conditions that make for their continuance should be more generally understood. How social agencies perpetuate the use of habit-forming drugs. When the use of some habit-forming drug has risen to the importance of a general custom, a number of conditions arise which tend to continue its use, even though the fact may be quite generally known that the substance does harm. In the first place, those who have formed the habit suffer inconvenience and distress when deprived of its use. In the second place, a number of people will have become interested in the production and sale of the substance, and these will lose financially if it is discontinued. In the third place, those of the rising generation will, from imitation or persuasion, be constantly acquiring the habit before they are sufficiently mature to decide what is best for them. 
Thus may the use of a substance most harmful, such as the opium of the Chinese, be indefinitely continued a species of slavery from which the individual finds it hard to escape, such is human nature and such are the forces and influences of human society, that the freeing of a people from the bondage of some habit-forming drug cannot be accomplished without strenuous and persistent effort, education, persuasion, the good example of abstainers, and legal restrictions must be pent against the forces that make for its continuance. Such a struggle is now in progress in all civilized countries relative to the use of alcoholic beverages. 135 How the use of alcohol became a social custom. The general use of alcohol as a beverage may be accounted for by three facts. Alcohol is a habit-forming drug, it has a stimulating effect which many have found agreeable, and being a product of the fermentation of fruit juices and other liquids containing sugar, it is easily obtained. Through the operation of these causes the human family became habituated very early to the use of alcohol. The wine of primitive man, however, did little harm as compared with the alcoholic liquors of modern times. It was a weak solution and on account of the crude methods of manufacture and storage could only be produced in limited quantities. Perhaps the worst effect of its early use was the establishment of a general belief in its power to benefit. Since this laid the foundation for excess in its use when the developments of a later period made it possible, during the 11th century the method of making alcoholic drinks from starch-producing substances, such as wheat, barley, and potatoes, became quite generally known, and also the method of concentrating them by distillation. This knowledge made possible the manufacture of alcoholic drinks in large quantities and in considerable variety. Alcoholic indulgence was now no longer the pastime of the few but the privilege of all, its evil effects followed as a matter of course, and as these became more and more apparent, there began the struggle to restrict the consumption of alcohol which has continued with varying success to the present time. Counts against alcohol. The statements found in different parts of this book relative to the effects of alcohol upon the body may here be summarized as follows. 1. Alcohol has an injurious effect upon the white corpuscles of the blood and lessens the power of the body to resist attacks of disease pages 35, 98, 2. Alcohol injures the heart and the blood vessels page 56, 3. Alcohol causes diseases of the liver and kidneys and interferes with the discharge of waste through these organs pages 210, 212, 4. Alcohol interferes seriously with the regulation of the body temperature page 271. 5. Alcohol is one of the worst enemies to the nervous system pages 326, 332, 334, 336, 337, 6. Through its effect upon the nervous system and through its interference with the production of bodily energy page 195, alcohol greatly diminishes the efficiency of the individual. 7. The taking of alcohol in amounts that apparently do not harm the tissues island nevertheless liable to produce a habit which leads to its use in amounts that are decidedly harmful. Alcohol and the social environment. Our social environment includes the people with whom we are directly or indirectly associated. The presence in any community of those who are immoral, inefficient, or defective, places a burden upon those who are mentally and physically capable and renders them liable to results which are the outgrowth of weakness or viciousness. The fact that alcohol causes pauperism, crying, and general inefficiency, thereby rendering the social environment less conducive to what is best in life, is plainly evident. To realize how alcohol harms the individual through its effects upon society in general, 
one has only to take into account his dependence upon society for intellectual and moral stimuli, for industrial and economic opportunity, for protection, and for general conditions that make for health and happiness. As we strive to improve our physical environment, so should we also strive for the betterment of social conditions, industrial use of alcohol. Interesting and instructive in this connection is the fact that alcohol island after all, a substance capable of rendering great service to humanity, the injury which it causes is the result of its misuse, though unfit for introduction into the human body, except in the most guarded manner, it is adapted to a great variety of uses outside of the body, a combustible substance which is readily convertible into a gas, it may be substituted for gasoline in the cooking of food, lighting of dwellings, and the running of machinery, as a solvent for gums, resins, essential oils, etc. It is used in the preparation of varnishes, extracts, perfumes, medicines, and numerous other substances of everyday use. Through its chemical interactions, it is used in the manufacture of ether, chloroform, explosives, collodion, celluloid, dyestuffs, and artificial silk. In fact, alcohol is stated by one authority to be, next to water, the most valuable liquid known, 136 opposed to an extensive use of alcohol for industrial purposes is the guard which the government must keep over its manufacture on account of its use in beverages, though alcohol may be profitably manufactured and sold at 30 cents per gallon, the government revenue stamp of 2.08 per gallon practically prohibits its use for many purposes. A step toward a wider application to industrial purposes has been taken by the law permitting the sale of so-called denatured 137 alcohol without the tax for revenue. This law has proved beneficial to some extent, though the practical solution of the problem is still remote. Nicotine and social custom. The influences which brought about a general use of tobacco are similar to, though not identical with, those that engrafted alcohol upon society. The drug nicotine is a habit-forming substance and the plant producing it is easily cultivated. 138 Its immediate effect upon the user is generally agreeable, acting as a stimulant to some, but having a soothing effect upon the nerves of others. Moreover, a strong deterring factor in its use is lacking, since its harmful effects are not readily discernible and by many are avoided through moderation in its use. As with alcohol, tobacco is conveniently used to promote sociability among men a fact which has much to do with its very general use. If it could be limited to social purposes, it would likely do little harm. But the habit, once started, is continued without reference to sociability a matter of selfish indulgence. In fact, one effect of tobacco is to cause the user to become less sensitive to the rights of others, this being evidenced by smokers who do not hesitate to make rooms and public halls almost unbearable to those unaccustomed to tobacco. Counts against nicotine. The physiological objections to the use of tobacco, as already stated pages 56, 92, 326, 333, 336, are the following, 1. The use of tobacco before one reaches maturity stunts the growth. The boy who uses it cannot develop into so strong and capable a man as he would by leaving it alone. 2. Tobacco injures the heart. 3. Tobacco injures the air passages especially when inhalation is practiced. 4. Tobacco injures the nervous system and by this means interferes in a general way with the bodily processes. For the same reason it interferes with mental and moral development, the cigarette being a chief cause of criminal tendencies in boys. 5. In some cases tobacco injures the vision. 6. 
The tobacco habit is expensive and is productive of no good results. Tobacco and the rising generation. The problem of limiting the use of tobacco to the point where it would do slight harm, in comparison to what it now does, would be solved if those under 20 years of age could be kept from using it. But few would then acquire the habit, and those who did would not be so seriously injured. In our own country it lies within the province of the home and the school to bring about this result. The fact that parents use tobacco is no reason why the boys should also indulge. The decided difference in effects upon the young and upon the mature makes this point very clear. Laws protecting boys from the evil effects of tobacco, not only cigarettes, but other forms as well, are both just and necessary. Social custom and the caffeine habit. My suitable process is a white, crystalline solid, easily soluble in water, can be separated from the leaves of tea, and from the berry of the coffee plant. This is the drug caffeine, the substance which gives to tea and coffee their stimulating properties, but not their agreeable flavors, less injurious, on the whole, than either alcohol or tobacco. Caffeine has come into general use in much the same way as these substances, in a sense. However, caffeine is more deceptive than either alcohol or nicotine, because the usual mode of preparing tea and coffee gives them the appearance of real foods. The housewife who would feel condemned in purchasing caffeine put up as a drug somehow feels justified when she extracts it from plant products in the regular preparation of the meal. Counts against caffeine. People of vigorous constitutions and of active outdoor habits are injured but slightly, if at all, by either tea or coffee when these are used in moderation. As already stated pages 56, 167, 326, 329. They do harm when used to excess and, in special cases, in very small amounts, in one of the following ways, 1. By stimulating the nervous system, thereby causing nervousness and insomnia and interfering with vital organs, 2. By introducing a waste which forms uric acid into the body, thereby throwing an extra burden upon the organs of elimination, in this connection it may also be stated that there appears to be little, if any real advantage to the healthy body from the use of either tea or coffee, beyond that of temporary stimulation and the gratification of an appetite artificially acquired, hence the large sums of money expended for these substances in this country yield no adequate returns, caffeine restrictions necessary, though with many the cup of tea or coffee at breakfast does no harm, but gives an added pleasure to the meal, there is no question but that the use of caffeine beverages should be greatly curtailed, Children should not be permitted to drink either tea or coffee. Brain workers and indoor dwellers generally should use these substances very sparingly, and people having a tendency to indigestion, nervousness, constipation, rheumatism, or diseases of the heart, kidneys, or liver frequently find it best to omit them altogether. Caffeine and soft drinks. Recently the practice has sprung up of using caffeine as a constituent of certain drinks supplied at the soda water fountains. Such drinks usually purport to be made from the cola nut, which contains caffeine, or to consist of extracts from the plants which yield cocoa and chocolate, when in reality they consist of artificial mixtures to which caffeine has been added. Those using these beverages are stimulated as they would be by tea or coffee and soon acquire the habit which makes them regular customers. Chief harm comes to the children who frequent the soda fountains and to those who, on account of constitutional tendencies, should avoid caffeine in all of its forms. It is generally understood that the so-called soft drinks are harmless. If this reputation is to be maintained, those containing caffeine must be excluded. Danger from certain medicinal agents. 
Among the most valuable drugs used by the physician in the treatment of disease are several, such as morphine, chloral, and cocaine, which possess the habit-forming characteristic. Sad indeed are the cases in which some pernicious drug habit has been formed through the reckless administration of such medicines. Even the taking of such a drug as quinine as a tonic tends to develop a dependence upon stimulation which is equivalent to a habit. In the same list come also the drugs that are taken to relieve a frequently recurring indisposition, such as headache. The so-called headache powders are most harmful in their effects upon the nervous system and should be carefully avoided. 139 Stimulants in Health and Necessary Stimulants have been aptly styled the whips of the nervous system, the healthy nervous system. However, like the well-disposed and well-fed horse, needs no whip, but is irritated and harmed through its use, even in periods of weakness and depression. Stimulants are usually not called for, but a more perfect provision for hygienic needs, rest, relaxation, sleep, proper food, and avoidance of irritation, not stimulants, are the great restorers of the nervous system. A surplus of nervous energy gained through natural means is more conducive to health and effective work than any result that can possibly be secured through drugs. Then with all comes the satisfaction of knowing that one has the expression of his real self in the way in which he feels and in what he accomplishes not a whipped up condition that must be paid for by weakness or suffering later on. Summary. To solve the problem of keeping well, one must live the life which is in closest harmony with the plan of the body. Such a life because of differences in physical organization, as well as differences in environment and occupation, cannot be the same for all. All, however, may observe the conditions under which the body can be used without injuring it and the special hygienic laws relative to the care of different organs, causes of disease, whether they be in one's environment, vocation, in his use of foods or drugs, or in his mode of recreation, must either be avoided or counteracted. While the problem is beset with such difficulties as lack of sufficient knowledge, inherited weakness, and time and opportunity for doing what is known to be best for the body, yet study and work that have for their aim the preservation or improvement of the health are always worthwhile. Health is its own reward, the expression of the poet, each morn to feel a fresh delight to awake to a life, to arise with bounding pulse to meet weights or of work, of care, of strife, day brings to me suggests the joy of being well, but the ultimate realization of one's aims and ambitions in life and the actual prolongation of one's period of fullness are higher and more enduring rewards. Exercises. 1. Summarize the different laws of hygiene. Upon what one fundamental law are these based? 2. State the important differences between a condition of health and one of disease. 3. In what general ways may disease originate in the body? 4. Describe a model sanitary home. With what special hygienic problems has the housekeeper to deal? 5. Describe a method of collecting a wholesome supply of cistern water. State possible objections to a well and spring water. 6. What means may be employed in preventing the spread of contagious diseases? 7. By what means are malaria, typhoid fever, diphtheria, and tuberculosis spread from one individual to another? 8. Why are extra precautions necessary in the recovery from certain diseases? as typhoid fever, diphtheria, and scarlet fever. 9. How may one's vocation become a cause of disease? What conditions in the life of a student may, if encounteracted, lead to poor health? 10. Of what special value are the parks and pleasure grounds in a city to the health of its inhabitants? 11. Discuss the hygienic value of work. 12. 
what conditions lead to the continuance of habit-forming substances after their use has become general. 14. How is it possible for one not using alcohol to be injured by this substance? 14. Discuss the effect of alcoholic abuse upon social environment. 15. Summarize the rewards of hygienic living. Summary of Part II For the maintenance of life the needs of the cells must be supplied and the body as a whole must be brought into proper relations with its surroundings. The last named condition requires that the body be moved from place to place, that its parts be controlled and coordinated, and that it be adjusted in its various activities to external physical conditions. To accomplish these results there are employed, 1. The skeleton, or bony framework, which preserves the form of the body and supplies a number of mechanical devices, or machines, for causing a variety of special movements. 2. The muscular system which supplies the energy necessary for executing the movements of the body. 3. The nervous system, which controls and coordinates the various activities and provides for the intelligent adjustment of the body to its environment. Review summary of Part I page 215, and consult figure 92, page 214. Appendix Equipment. Nearly all of the apparatus and materials called for in this book may be found in the physical, chemical, and biological laboratories of the average high school. There should be ready, however, for frequent and convenient use. The following, one or more compound microscopes with two-thirds and one-fifth inch objectives, a set of prepared and mounted slides of the various tissues of the body, a set of dissecting instruments, including bone forceps, a mounted human skeleton and a mannequin or a set of physiological charts, a set of simple chemical apparatus including bottles, flasks, test tubes, and evaporating dishes, and a Bunsen burner or some other means of supplying heat. The few chemicals required may be obtained from a drugstore or from the chemical laboratory. Access to a workbench having a set of carpenter's tools will enable one to prepare many simple pieces of apparatus as they are needed. Physiological charts are easily prepared by teachers or pupils by carefully enlarging the more important illustrations found in textbooks or by working out original sketches and diagrams. These if drawn on heavy manila paper, may be hung on the wall as needed and preserved indefinitely. By the use of colors, necessary contrasts are drawn and emphasis placed on parts as desired. The author has for a number of years used such homemade charts in his teaching and has found them quite satisfactory. His plan has been to draw on heavy manila paper, cut in sizes of 2 by 3 feet, the general outline in pencil and then to mark over this with the desired colors. There is of course an opportunity for producing results that are artistic as well as practical, and if one has time and artistic skill, better results can be obtained. Many of the cuts in this book are excellently sweet to enlargement and, if properly executed, will provide a good set for general class purposes. Models. The use of prepared models of the different bodily organs is strongly urged. These may be so used in elementary courses as to obviate much of the dissections upon lower animals. Although the actual tissues cannot be so well portrayed, the general form and construction of organs are much better shown. Models well adapted to class or laboratory work are easily obtained through supply houses. Illustrations of several of these are shown in connection with the practical work.